Here comes O'Bannon, in and out, down the lane. And the foul. Rebounded inside, O'Bannon, who banks it in. Here's O'Bannon, he's been sensational. To the bucket! O'Bannon, the senior, the last time he will ever play on this court at Freedom Hall, and he flat can't miss. Welcome in, guys, to another episode of the Players Perspective Uncensored with Larry O'Bannon. Appreciate you guys for tuning in. It's a pleasure for me to be here talking to you guys. I'm really starting to like the relationship that we're starting to develop here. You guys tuning in, I'm talking. This is starting to become a wonderful thing. Now, under normal circumstances, this time of year with the first Saturday in May approaching, celebrities will be flying in, parties will be lined up, bets will be placed. The world will be centered around Louisville, Kentucky for one of the best weekends of the year. And as Bob Costa says, the most exciting two minutes in sports, the Kentucky Derby. Now, in lieu of everything going on in the world right now, we're going to preserve the Derby spirit. We're going to keep it going forward by talking with world-renowned horse trainer Dale Romans. Now, I love horse racing. I go out to Churchill Downs all the time with my family. It's a way for us to spend quality time together. Love going out there as a kid with my dad. It was a way for us to bond and spend quality time together. He taught me the ins and outs of betting. And after a while, you start to learn the regulars out there when you make appearances. And one thing my dad always said, as long as you left with the same amount that you went in with, that's a win. But I'm honored to have Dale on the show with us. Just going to keep it simple. Going to talk horse racing, going to talk derby, and we're just going to let the legend speak. And now for our favorite part of the podcast, our bourbon selection of the day. Our bourbon selection of the day for this episode is Blanton Single Barrel Bourbon, produced by the Sazerac Company, distilled at the Buffalo Trace Distillery right outside of Frankfort, Kentucky, in the famous metal-clad Warehouse H. Comes in at 93 proof or 46.5% alcohol volume. Now, it's reported that this was the very first single-barrel bourbon that was sold commercially. That's why they refer to themselves as the original single-barrel bourbon. It was a way of Elmer T. Lee, former master distiller in the 80s at the George T. Stagg Distillery, which is now known as the Buffalo Trace Distillery. It was a way for him to pay tribute to his predecessor and prolong the legacy of master distiller Colonel Albert Blanton. Now, it's a hard bourbon to find, so most of the time, if you see it, you better grab it because it's a good chance it's not going to last long. But I'm ready. My gentleman's drink is ready. I'll review it a little bit later. Let's welcome Dale Romans to the podcast. <laughs> Dale Romans, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks for calling me. All right, let's get into it. So first, let me ask you, do you drink bourbon, being from Kentucky? Drink bourbon? Yeah, I drink bourbon. I drink the Woodford Reserve. Okay, Woodford Reserve is your go-to? That's my go-to, especially they do, you know, they sponsor the Kentucky Derby, not to mention they're one of my best friends since high school is the president of Woodford Reserve. But it is, a, yeah, I love a good bourbon. Nice, nice. Now let's get into your background a little bit. Now you grew up around horses. Your dad was the infamous trainer, Jerry Roman. He said you had a special way of connecting sometimes with the worst horses. So talk about your background coming up, uh, just being around horses all the time and, yeah. and with your dad and things like that. Well, horses are much more important to me than people may know on the surface. When I was a kid growing up, I literally, me and my brother, we grew up in a barn. One of my brothers, the other one didn't care that much for it. We, we grew up in a barn, but... For me personally, I was so severely dyslexic, diagnosed as a child, that I mean, I only talked, 
I could I can barely read and write today, you know, at a level necessary to function. But when I walked in the barn, even as a kid, I was comfortable. And the horses, I was almost like to communicate with them. And they just made me feel comfortable and better. In the school, I was I couldn't take it. I was too uptight, couldn't deal with the stuff. But I did graduate high school. So horses have been more important to me than just making a living my entire life. And that's kind of the effect they have on a lot of people. You know, there's a connection with horses and people that you don't see with other animals. And I don't know what it is or why it is, but, you know, when it, King said a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, he knew what he was talking about. A horse could save the day. Right, right. Now, in basketball, each player on the team is different. How is each horse different from one to the next? You know what? It's a couple of things about comparisons of basketball to me is, you know, you've got your little point guards. Those things are on the six furlongs. You got your power forwards. Those are your strong milers. And you got your big centers that win the Kentucky Derbies and stuff, and they go a mile and a quarter, a mile and a half. Mm-hmm. And and every they're professional athletes. Even though they're animal athletes, they have attitudes. They have bad moods. They have good moods. They want to believe me. I know they want to win and they compete. And it's it's very interesting. I was playing golf with Coach Patino one day. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the comparisons of basketball as our two jobs. He's the first person to point out to my attention that we have all the responsibility and actually very little to control. Right. And that's the worst part about my job is these players, my players can't talk to me. They can't tell me their knees bother and ankles bother. <laughs> I got to figure out. Right. And then Rick quickly answered me by saying the worst part about my job is the players can talk to me. <laughs> he said, "Go give a guy two hundred million dollar contract and then try to coach him and talk to him." Yeah, wasn't wasn't a whole lot of going back and forth with him. If it was, you was going right to the treadmill. Your best job was just to listen to that when he was talking. Exactly. When he he's one of few that could talk, right? Right. Now, when I left Mel High School, I was a really good basketball player. But by the time I left U of L, I was a great basketball player. How do horses develop? from the time you get them really young to becoming a full-blown racing thoroughbred? You, you know what? For not working in the horse business, you've already asked me some of the best questions. <laughs> Y'all try to do a little research, man. You know, I, I, I really enjoy this podcast, and so I do a little research right. on the people that I'm interviewing. And being from Louisville, everybody knows Dale's Romans. Uh, and my dad was super excited, man, when I told him that I was interviewing you. So, yeah, definitely well, do my cool. due diligence, man, before I get on here. Yeah, well, let me tell you about the, the comparison of progression in a horse with with, with basketball. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always compare. They said you got a seven foot eighth grader, you know. Right. Felton Spencer is the same age as me, and I know you know Felton. Mm-hmm. I never met him. I'd like to meet him someday. But I watched him play as a freshman in high school because we're about the same age. And he'd turn around, and they'd put a little guard behind him, and he'd run over top of the guard and foul. And, but that little guard didn't play me anymore when Felton was in the NBA as he grew, got older, and got better. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll have some of these big old horses that are just kind of dodgy and gangly when they're young, and it's just something to see them turn into Felton as an NBA player. Right. And, they, and you get a lot of that. You, you, they will progress now. With that being said, you knew watching a guy like Felton or, or most seven-footers in the eighth grade that this guy was going to come into form. He had some, a lot of things he could do right. He just didn't have total control of all his body at the time. 
And these horses are the same way. You can see the ones that are great at uh, when they're galloping and how they move, and they just haven't put it all together. Sometimes you just got to wait it out, and, and then you end up with Shaquille O'Neal. Right, right. So take me through a typical day just from the time you get started at the actual time you get started to the end of the day. Take me through a typical day for let's just focus on one horse and take me through a typical day of how okay. it, you know, starts to how it ends. I'm going to take you through the of horse. Horse is two days, let's say. Okay. And we're going to say, we're, I don't anymore get to born at 5 o'clock, but still my crew does. I figure I've been around long enough, I earned the right to come in at 7. Right. <laughs> they'll get there at 5 o'clock in the morning. And we're going to take Mr. Freeze, for instance. That's the horse running in Oakland Park Handicap on Saturday. Okay. Mr. Freeze normally will go to the, will get there at 5 o'clock in the morning. Someone will have probably fed him, night watchman might have fed him at 4.30, so he ate a little breakfast. He'll get out and he'll hand walk for 30 minutes. And they'll clean his stall. He'll go back into the stall. Then we'll tack him up and we'll say, at 9 o'clock, he's going to go to the racetrack. And on an average day, he'll gallop. He'll jog a mile and gallop a mile and a half, which is a gallop is probably 60% energy exertion. And a jogging is a different move for a horse they have these different gates and when they're jogging they're loosening up their muscles so that's our stretch time mm -hmm. and then we'll gallop a mile and a half and then uh he'll come back to the barn he'll get someone will put a lead on him and take him out they'll give him a good bath hot, hot soapy bath and he'll walk hand walk in a circle in the barn for another 30 45 minutes then he'll go in his stall and his groom will brush him good we have therapists that come through and give like an electronic massage. Then his, all four ankles and legs will be massaged and, and liniments put on them and a bandage is put on them to make sure that he doesn't hurt himself. And uh, at 11 o'clock, he'll eat his lunch. Now, the crew will come back again. Now, now that's done. Now you leave, and you leave him completely alone. Mm -hmm. And then dinner time, they'll start at 3.30. The grooms will come back, and he'll get out again, and he'll probably walk 15 or 20 minutes by hand. His stall will be cleaned a second time, and his feet will be set in at 5 o'clock. Now, he's pretty much done for the day. The night watchman will come around at 8.30, and like him, he's always needs a little extra green, so we'll feed him again at 8.30, give him just a little uh, midnight snack, and now then he'll get fresh water, and he'll be left alone until the next morning, and it'll all start again. Well, let's say that this is Friday we're talking about. Well, then Saturday's race day will come in. Might not walk him the first walk. Give him a good hot bath. Get him out for 30, 45 minutes. And then he'll be left alone until it's time for him to run. Okay. And uh, then one day a week, if they're not racing that day, or, or, or racing any, within seven days, basically, we'll go to speed work, which is about 80% exertion rate. And that's about once a week. So, and then for me to continue on, then I'll go home after we put him in the stall at 11, take a shower, usually come back to the races. I'll have to uh, talk to all my clients and, and, and take, talk to my office about different business. And, you know, then it becomes running, not being a horseman, but trying to run a, a corporation. Right, right. Now, when you're determining the length that a horse should run, 
is that based on his first few competitions or do you know that already going into the competition what his strengths are uh, according to the length of the race that he should run? But some of them are for you. You know, I'm sure you play with guys that are gamers. Mm-hmm. When the lights come on, they're a lot better than they were practicing against them the morning before. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and there's not a lot of them like that, but there's a few in the world, and the same thing with horses. Some of them are for you. You don't think they have much right. You don't think they can run, and then all of a sudden you put them in the gate, game day, and they come out and it's right like scalded dogs. You, but and there's some of them like I'm talking about that are the gangly freshmen that I know are going to be good sophomores. And those things, they might not run well the first three, four, five, even five times. That horse took me eight times for him to win his first race, and then he ended up on $2 million. Right. So, but they have to show you something in training. You know, they have to be making their shots in practice. Just aren't quite fast enough yet. But you know that when they get fast enough, they're going to be good for you to put the time and energy into them. Right, right. Now, what goes into determining what surface that they run on? Is that part of the training as well, training them on grass and training them on dirt to see which surface that they run better on? Right. A lot of that has, believe it or not, and I, I, I'll admit, I don't even understand it. Mm-hmm. It's about their pedigree, their lineage. Their father was a grass horse, they're usually a grass horse. Okay. And I don't know what it is, what the physical, what physically they reproduce that makes them better on turf than they do on dirt. Personally, I always try to make a horse a dirt horse first because uh, I'm always trying to develop a, a, a derby caliber racehorse. Mm-hmm. But, if they, but if they prove to me they can't, and a lot of times the horse will be, you know he can run, but when you really sit down on him and ask him to go, he just can't accelerate on the dirt. Right. You switch him over to the turf and they'll have a huge acceleration. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it is the way it is. Right. Now, teams have coaches – and it has to be the right coach for the right team to get them get them to perform to the best of their abilities. How do you go about selecting the jockey that you want to run on a particular horse? Another good question. Each one of these jockeys now has an agent, just like uh, NBA player, mm-hmm. and they, which my son happens to be one of them. He's an agent for uh, Joe Talma, one of the most talented riders in the country. I like to get a relationship where I have one or two or three jockeys that always ride all my horses. And really what made my career and what got me going was Pat Day took a liking to me when he was a cock king at Churchill Downs. Right. And he started riding all my horses. And then people thought, you know, if you're good enough for Pat Day, you're good enough for me. And it was like stealing. You know, I had Michael Jordan <laughs> in the irons. Right. And it made a huge difference. Uh, so that, that, it's a give or take. I try to stick with a core few. Some people use a whole bunch. Some people like to, you know, the jockey's got the worst of it. And you think about these athletes. They have to keep their weight under 115 pounds or so. They're about 1% body fat. USC did a study saying that they're the pound for pound the best athletes there is. Now they have to sit on their, they only have like three toes in those irons when they're in that squatted position. They're going up to 40 miles an hour in a pack a foot apart from one another, getting pelted with dirt, and we expect them to be able to know how fast they're going and look for holes in a race. It's really an athletic feat. Yeah, that's and amazing. Not to mention my wife is one of them, but, uh, so I, I have a little better feeling for it, maybe. But it, uh, it is really an athletic thing. So I don't – they make mistakes. They're always going to make mistakes. And a lot of guys will fire them off of a horse 
if he gets beat one time. I've never felt like this. I think a guy's a quality rider, and I'm getting 80% good rides from him. Mm-hmm. He's staying with me through thick and thin. And I think of any athlete, if you're a shooting guard, you can't have a coach sitting on the sidelines that you're afraid he's going to yank you out if you miss a shot. Right. And I feel the same way about my jockeys. In fact, Dave told me something early on in my career. He says, the less instructions you give me, the better the edge of having me ride for you is because it's gut instinct. And I have to react in fifths of a second to make decisions. And if I have to think that he want me here or there, the opportunity's gone. Right, right. And he told me when he releases to his, to his gut instinct, there's a jockey, he said, when I release to my gut instinct and I ride to my gut instinct, I don't know why, but I feel like I'm a half a second ahead of everybody else in the world. And, that's and so, as an athlete, that makes sense to you, I'm sure. It does, and it's so true because when you just go off that visceral feeling and, and you just playing and you're reacting off instinct, everything just happens a split second faster because that half a second that you take to think, you know, the defender's got a step on you or the defender's He's got an edge. Yeah, and, it, and it's the same thing. And it doesn't take a second because once you get that half step behind, you know, you're not going to recover because you're no. competing with other world-class athletes. So, like you said, the less thinking you do, the better off you'll be and, in the and, long and there's run. A radar, there's a radar in athletes, in my opinion. There's no way, okay, how much you practice that you can turn around in three-point line as quickly as you have to and do the calculations of the physics necessary to make that ball go through that basket unless you just release it and your brain does it faster than you think it can. And it's the same thing with horse racing. If you thought, if you worried about every time you missed a shot and you have been accumulated up in the closet with Ray Young, you'd have never made a basket. And you'd have never taken a shot. Right. Right. That's so true. That is so true. Now, one thing I've, I've always been curious about is, is there a way that you can try your best to prepare horses for the environment of a racetrack with the people yelling and screaming the entire race? Really, really horses, in my opinion, teaching a horse about the environment of a horse race is hard to do with the noise and all that. Cause we do school them. We take them every day, before, every day before a horse runs, the day before they run, I will take them over to the paddock where they get saddled to race and let them just look around. Mm-hmm. But one story I think is, just as interesting, if not more interesting, was a friend of mine down here that trains horses was a very close friend of Muhammad Ali's. And he told me that he would travel with Muhammad all the time. And it's a true story. I know, he, I know they were real close. Happy altar. And he said uh, Muhammad called him one when he was going to do the thrill fight the thrill in Manila. And he said, it's like three months out. He said, I'm going to the Philippines and I want you to come with me. He said, Happy said, you don't wait fight for three months. Why would you go down there now? He said, I train in the environment I fight in. And it was a hundred and something degrees the, day, the night they went in the ring. Mm-hmm. And it was a dog fight, you know, and Ali ends up winning. Well, maybe that made the difference. So Happy's explained, explained to me, and I've lived by this all along. A lot of people like to train the horse as soon as the racetrack opens at 530 in the morning. The sun's not up. The humidity's different. The sun, the moisture in the track is different. And Happy said that's why he always trains his horses later during the training schedule, which you have between 5.30 and 10 o'clock in the morning. But if you go out there, like I said, Mr. Freeze, I'll take him out at 9. The environment is totally different than it was at 5.30 in the morning, and it's much more like it's going to be when he races in the middle of the afternoon. And that's kind of a training secret about the environment. Nice. 
Now, you've been a part of and won some grand races with some of the richest purses in the world, one being the Dubai World Cup that you won with Roses in May. Now, how was that experience, and what does it do winning a race like that for you being a trainer? Well, you know, that's, again, another legend. Wayne Lucas told me when I was just really getting rolling. And I was talking about, man, I wish I had all the horses that you have. And he just looked at me and said, you got to earn the right to train these horses. And he's right. He's right. So every step that you take along the way, when I started out, my first win was making $3,500 at Turfway Park. I think I got $1,800 when I owned the horse for winning. And the race you're speaking of was $6 million, and I got my portion, $360,000. And I earned the right to, to train roses made over those in between all those years. Mm-hmm. And it does. It just moves you. It, it, it just moves you forward. It proves to people that you can compete at the highest level. That you, uh, you know, you're a rookie and you come in and get 12 in your first game, people are going to pick their head up. And by the time your career is over, you're getting 22. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. I'll tell you another very similar thing to NBA and horse racing is the, I call it my draft. In September, there's 5,000 little baby horses that are sold in one auction. Mm-hmm. And you have to examine them and figure out which ones are going to be good. So I have what I call a combine, and that's where we will take a whole team around to look at almost, well, first of all, we have a guy look at the pedigree, father, the lineage, and we narrow it down to what we think can be a triple crown distance type of horse. Right. Then we sit out the, the assistant coaches, and they go and look at every horse that's still in that group. And now they'll throw out horses that aren't made right. They have to be made a certain way to be real athletes. And if they know I wouldn't like them the way their, their shape is, they throw all of them out. And then I'll come along with another guy. We'll go through and we'll hand select out of that smaller pool who we want. Now, after that, we'll do a complete ultrasound of the cardiovascular system that will tell us what we think the distance capability of this horse will be. If you got a little big heart and great big lungs, you're not going to be good. If you got great big lungs and a little big heart, they can't work well together. You'll live forever, you'll be fine, but you're not going to be a world-class athlete. So we'll do that. And then if the ones that pass that, we'll get it down to the veterinarian comes in now, and he'll do a complete x-ray of the skeleton, and uh, he'll do a scope and, and a look at the, the air passages for the horse. Mm-hmm. And after all that's done, so 5,000 horses, we may get it down to 100 horses that we think have the capability to be a top-level horse, and that's the pool in which it just becomes price point, and we try to buy one. Nice. Now, I've always been curious, especially with the race going on in Dubai. You know, you drive on highways, and you see horses in these, you know, trailer pickups, you know, that you see driving by when you're in a car. I've always been interested in the transportation when a horse has to go long distance, say to like a Dubai or to Europe, you know, for these world-class races. How was the travel or the transportation for a horse going that distance? It's better than you and I have. <laughs> that day that we that day that we took horses and made to Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed sent his private carrier over for the horses that he flies his own horses in. There were four horses on this big jumbo jet that could hold 28 of them. And he's in a stall, of his, all of his, just like he was in a barn. He's got hay, he's got water, he's got feed, and off they go. Wow. Now, you know, and I, then there's a whole other system, a smaller plane that 
like Mr. Freeze is going to run in, in Arkansas on Saturday. He's in South Florida. Well, the plane is leaving tomorrow morning. He has to leave Gulfstream Park at 8.30 in the morning to catch a plane to Oakland. And there'll probably be 15 horses on that plane. And they just fly them around. Now, before the Kentucky Derby, the last race that horses or the, the classic horses running is what, the Florida Derby? There's a whole series of them. And that's, uh, that's what makes the Kentucky Derby so great is Every region has like their buildups, and it's like the final four. You have all four regions, mm-hmm. and for the Kentucky Derby, the best of each region comes together. Okay. And so the last round of prep races in a normal year. Now this year is totally different on every aspect, but at the the last round is usually four weeks for the Kentucky Derby, and that would be the Bluegrass, the Wood, the Bluegrass at, at Keeneland, the Wood at Oakland or, or at Aqueduct. The Florida Derby at Gulfstream Park, the Arkansas Derby at Oakland Park, the Louisiana Derby at the Fairgrounds in Louisiana, Santa Anita Derby at Santa Anita Park in California. That's the last round of big point races, and it would be almost a, some of them are a week apart, so it'd be almost impossible for a horse to run in both the two races of the last round. And that's where if you win, if you run one, two, and one of those two, you're automatically in the Kentucky Derby. Point system set up that way. Right. Okay. So let's let's say for example, there's a horse that finishes either the Florida Derby or the Louisiana Derby, and they're starting to prepare for the big race in the Kentucky Derby. What's the recovery process immediately after that race, and how does strategy build up into the recovery and the preparation for the Kentucky Derby. Well, recovery is important and for any athlete, as you know. The right. greatest athletes can go out there and you can play a game and take a drink of Gatorade and you can go out to dinner. I'll go play a basketball game and I, they'd have me on an athlete and oxygen. And it's, the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing with horses. The best athletes recover quick. Mm-hmm. But what we'll do after a race, usually, is take them back after the race again. If you see, there's a lot of hand walking in horse races. We'll walk them for 45 minutes to an hour. And then for for me personally, usually three days, they don't have to go back to racetrack and exercise, and that gives them the the time to replenish their fluids, get their strength back, and then you start training for the Kentucky Derby. And about ten days to two weeks after their race, we start doing some speed work with them again, and you'll do that usually once a week up until the big race. I like to work my horse speed at five eight to a mile in a pretty good time, pretty quick time a week out from a race. And then after that, you'll back it down and start taking it easier with them. And then worrying about like making sure that their aches and pains or muscle soreness and stuff can go away before the week's over. And that's where you get in and do a lot of therapy with them. Before I ask you this last question, what are some unwritten rules to, to horse racing, sort of like sportsmanship? Like, you know, in basketball at the end of the game, clearly there's a decisive winner. If somebody's up 20 points and you, you're dribbling the, clock out you know you typically don't go and try to steal the ball to try to get a cheap basket on the other end you show good sportsmanship you know let the team dribble the clock out and you go on in horse racing what are some like you know kind of like the sportsmanship or unwritten rules to racing when like a race is going on because there's a lot of bumping you know there's a lot of different things that may go on that your typical fan like myself don't really know about that might be an unwritten rule that you don't do in horse racing. So can you right. maybe give me an example of maybe one that people don't uh, know I'll about? Give you a couple. Uh-huh. I'll give you a couple examples of unwritten sportsmanship rules in the game. And 
the biggest one would be, like say, for the jockeys. You know, it's known you do what you do to have to win. If you can squeeze a horse in tight and he doesn't like being tight, you do it. But life and limb always first. And they're going 35 miles an hour with very little protective gear on, and life or limb is on the line at times. Right. And so if you have a horse squeezed in tight and the rider's going to actually have to fall, you let him out. You give up your win, maybe, and you help him. You help one another. Because life and limb first. And then there's some other things like uh, just etiquette. Like if a guy has a client and he's had him for a lot of years, out of etiquette, I don't go trying to hustle that client and say, hey, come over, give me your horse, and I'll do better. And, and things like that. All the same stuff. There's so many parallels to major sports that we all participate in to horse racing. Now, you've won an abundance of world-class races. You've won three Breeders' Cup events, the Arlington Million. You beat the Triple Crown winner, American Pharaoh, and the Traver Stakes. You won the 2011 Preakness with Shackelford. You won the Eclipse Award for Trainer of the Year. You've been on the board at the Belmont Stakes. You've been on the board in the Kentucky Derby. What would it mean for you to be in the winner's circle at the Kentucky Derby? Well, as you know, I grew up in the city of Louisville, and I grew up three miles from Churchill Downs, where my mother still lives. My playground was the barn that I train out of today. It was my father's barn. And we really, I mean, to win a Kentucky Derby, when I came up in my father's stable, being as small as it was, was an unrealistic goal you wouldn't even think about. Now I've been fortunate enough to win in 10. And the walkover for the Derby has to be like the Bulls pregame. I mean, it's uh, or running on the field for the Super Bowl. And every time I walk over in the 10, all I hear is people yelling down at me that I've known my entire life and cheering me up. Right. And it would be so special to win that race, and especially when it's for the city. I think it was the city, we'd have a whole party in the city. Yes, we would. Yes, we would. They've been, you know how Louisville is. If you're born and raised there, they support you through and through. <laughs> you are absolutely right. I am a living witness to that. Dale Roman, now we've reached a part of the podcast that we like to call the Burr Proof segment. If you know anything about bourbon, which I'm sure you do since you grew up with the president of Wolf Reserve, you know that Burr Proof bourbon is one of the strongest on the market. Comes straight out of the barrel. When you sip it, gives you a little warming sensation. And so that's what we want to do right now. We want to put you on a hot seat, give you some rapid fire questions. We don't want you to give it a lot of thought. Just give us your first answer, and we're going to roll with it. Fire away. All right. Besides Churchill Downs, which, you know, being from Louisville, you obviously have a bias towards, what's one of your other favorite racetracks to go and race at? Uh, uh, Belmont, or Gulfstream Park, Belmont Park, Saratoga. Nice. I haven't been there, but I, I definitely uh, hear a lot about that. I, my man Fred Hina tells me a lot about that uh, racetrack. Yeah. I definitely have to get to check it out. When you're not around horses, what's one of your favorite things to do? I like those sporting events. I like that's one of my favorites. Your favorite steakhouse to go and eat at? It could be in Kentucky. It could be all over the world. It's your favorite steakhouse? The best steak I've ever eaten in my, my favorite steakhouse to hang out in is to Ruth Chris top of Caden Tower in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of friends up there, and I eat there about twice a week. But the best steak I've ever eaten in my life was at the Maidan Hotel Steakhouse overlooking Maidan Racetrack in Dubai. Nice. Nice. I have a good, I've actually been to Dubai, but I, I, I never heard of that. But if I make a trip back, I definitely have to 
get there. You got to try that place out. But you know, in Dubai, they tear stuff down and put it back up about every three years. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm a I've big, been there eight times. Eight, eight times I've been there, the place looks different every time I showed up. I'm a big steak guy, man. I love trying out different steakhouses, so I'm going to definitely have to put that one on my list. One basketball coach you would compare your training style to and be similar to? That's a good question, too. And I'm going to go with Nick Nurse. I know Nick Nurse pretty well. I can't believe I couldn't tell with Nick. <laughs> I'm going to say Nick Nurse because Nick Nurse, when he went boxing one, that was unorthodox, and I, I think I trained maybe a little unorthodox. Right, but as long as you get it done, that's all that matters. Yeah, I'd like to say Patino, but he's got too much intensity for me. <laughs> a lot of intensity, a lot of intensity. Last okay. question. When people mention Dale Romans in horse racing, what's the first thing you want people to say about you? Left the game better than he found it. Man, what a way to close out the podcast. Mr. Dale Roman, the all-time leader in wins and training at the Churchill Downs, over 117 gray stakes wins. Your resume is on a scroll that's too long to even name everything, but it's a world-class one at that. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come through and join us, man. Thank you, buddy. And any time a, a little man wants to call me, they're welcome to do it. I mean, what a treat it is to have a guy like Dale Romans come through and talk about derby and talk about horse racing with us on our own podcast. Now, this is a guy that's walked out for some of the biggest horse races and won some of the biggest horse races around the world, and he's trained some of the best thoroughbreds in racing now for me as somebody that loves to learn the true work of another craft you couldn't have a better person on your podcast and you couldn't find a better person to talk to the whole city of louisville is pulling for him to get this elusive derby victory and it will come and when it does come we'll be ready to celebrate and i guarantee you there will not be a shortage of bourbon now speaking of bourbon let's get to the review of our bourbon selection of the day which was blanton single barrel bourbon now, it was soft on the nose as far as the alcohol runoff. Gave a really pleasant toffee aroma, some caramel, and also had a real crisp smell to it as well. Now, to the sip, had good energy, nice amount of tingling to it. Had a nice full body when it comes to the texture. Has a smooth blend of sweet with a little bit of spice flavor caramel and honey in the beginning and cinnamon after right before the transition now in the transition they carried a four out of ten on the heat scale which was pretty smooth the initial aftertaste has this small floral flavor with it but finishes up with a sweet aftertaste after that now it's a great pour and it's obviously how quickly it leaves the shelves when it's at or close to retail value it's definitely one that you have to have if you can find it anywhere you go and anytime you stop at any liquor store now make sure you guys tune in next wednesday we'll be joined by national champion former nba guard peyton siva on the podcast really looking forward to having him on now make sure you guys follow us on twitter at the ppu podcast make sure you guys follow us on instagram at the players perspective podcast continue to send us your bourbon recommendations that'll do it for this episode you guys have been great thank you guys for tuning in it's been a wonderful relationship let's keep it going and that is the player's perspective